It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is on a roll, but is his relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson a curse rather than a blessing? We look at why the Glazers might just prefer someone with a bit of distance from their legendary former gaffer. Chelsea has a habit of chewing up managers and spitting them out. And Maurizio Sarri is beginning to look like the latest in a long line to get fed up with club structures. We assess the Italian's reign so far and his relationship with the club. And Frankie de Jong looks set to snub the Premier League. What does it mean that arguably Europe's greatest midfield talent sees his future elsewhere? Okay, well, the transfer window did predict that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would have a titanic start to his career as Manchester United boss. But to be fair, we only thought that those first five games were extremely winnable. And we thought Tottenham might be a struggle, but he went to Wembley and Manchester United won. Duncan, what do you make of this start? Six games in a row. I think, as you say, the Tottenham game was the telling one. And um, I think he showed something that um, we might not have expected to see from Solskjaer in that that game was won with a very clever tactical plan um, where he'd, they'd studied Tottenham, they studied the way they'd been playing with, um, with the tight diamond midfield um, with uh, Ericsson and Dele Alli um, almost playing on top of each other. If you look at the average positions from recent Tottenham games, it's, um, it's amazing how... how close the four central midfielders are to each other, allowing Son and, and Kane to, to do the attacking work. And then they push their fullbacks right up the pitch because they've got no one else to provide with. And what Solskjaer and his uh, coaching staff had, had done in the, you know, they had an entire week to prepare for this game, um, which obviously was a help, um, warm weather training. Uh, uh, you saw Jesse Lingard after the match talking about how they'd spent the week uh, practicing in a, in a different formation they used for the match was he, he, he spotted that weakness and they decided right we're not going to play with Rashford as a, as a central striker as we have been doing and we're not going to play in a 4-2-3-1 with um, Pogba as a number 10 we'll bring Pogba back into a three in the midfield to give us more bodies where Tottenham have most of their bodies and we'll get Rashford to play in between um, the centre back and behind uh, the left back and Anthony Martial to do the, the same on the opposite wing uh, off the, the right-hand sided centre-back and, and behind the right back. And then Lingard just playing in ahead of uh, Harry Winks in the space between him and, uh, and get the ball forward as quickly as possible, um, uh, telling that uh, David De Gea was playing the ball um, long, um, not passing out from the back. Uh, the midfielders also hitting quick passes, and that's where the goal came from. A brilliant 
quite fast for Paul Pogba. I think, said this before, I think Pogba is probably as good a long passer of the ball as anyone in the division. Um, and when he sees them and hits those passes quickly, he sets up goals as he did there. Although you also have to credit, credit Rashford with, um, with an excellent finish. Um, so Solskjaer took full advantage of the preparation time he had. He implemented a very clever plan. He um, took advantage of the fact that uh, Tottenham had played a difficult um, League Cup semi-final in the week, so his team had, had more preparation time um, and more energy to go into that game. He'd also rested a lot of players for the FA Cup match beforehand um, and got a win, which is hugely important in terms of um, getting United back into a real chase for Champions League qualification and maintaining the confidence and the feel-good factor he's developed amongst the players and amongst the, the, the staff and amongst the supporters of Manchester United um, and placed himself in a position where he's now being seriously talked about as the next full-time manager of Manchester United, as the club want to describe it, and a, and a, and a sensible, realistic option, alternative to... Uh, Maurizio Pochettino, who would, um, it should be noted, cost a huge amount more to hire than Solskjaer does, which is obviously going to be a big attraction to the Glazers, as we've uh, as we've noted a couple of times in this podcast before. I think one of the things which um, was surprising, it, it, not even necessarily that, maybe astonishing, was the, re- the reaction generally to David De Gea's performance in that game, Johnny. Um, he made 11 saves um, when he was interviewed after the game. Um, he even, uh, when asked about one particular, said he couldn't remember because he made so many. Uh, but for me, that was a fairly, I wouldn't say normal, but above normal performance in a big game for David De Gea. Um, the idea that Solskjaer uh, then rates him as the best goalkeeper in the world. And I'm thinking, well, he's been the best player at Manchester United for the last six years. Both voted for the fans and by, I think, everyone's consent. He has been the one player who's been consistent and kept them in contention when they've been in contention or indeed when they won trophies. Um, he is brilliant. So this notion that, oh, we all wake up to the idea on um, Monday morning that David De Gea is you know, somehow shocking us with his brilliance is nonsense. The other point I'd like to make as well is that um, Solskjaer has been very verbal and very open, and there's nothing wrong with that in his... Um, uh, gratitude uh, to Sir Alex Ferguson uh, in terms of his advice and his help since he has come in. It's natural that a player who spent um, so many years under his guidance and is such a massively influential figure would consult the greatest manager the club has ever had coming into a crisis situation as he did um, and then taking that on. I'd say to Oli, um, be careful what you talk about in public or even in private because it is absolutely the case that when the Glazers were negotiating Ferguson's retirement in 2013 that they did so on the basis that they wanted more influence in the football department and football operations because Ferguson as we all know was um, king of all he surveyed at Old Trafford and beyond so um, they effectively ostracised Ferguson for five years uh, during the reigns of David Mo- David Moyes, David, that would be a good one, David Moyes, um, Louis van Gaal, and then uh, also 
Jose Mourinho and Ed Woodward in direct correlation with Afram and Brian Glazer um, were responsible in terms of uh, transfer policy, recruitment research, and then, of course, the actual signing of players. I'm not saying there was no inclusion of any of the coaches at that time, but what we know from Jose Mourinho's time there is that he didn't get the players he wanted. Now, I don't think the Glazers um, are people who change their mind very quickly, even with six wins on the trot under Solskjaer. And therefore, if they see Solskjaer as a kind of, you know, Fergie buddy and Ferguson having influence on uh, training, he's been to the training ground twice since Solskjaer has been in charge. And Solskjaer has openly admitted that he speaks to Ferguson regularly with regards to everything concerning the football club. And you have to at least surmise that when it comes to team selection, even that Fergie may well be having a little influence there. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying you have to think that that's one of the key, if not the key, decision made in any week of a football manager is the team he puts out and the tactics he plays. Now it's working. That's the first thing. But if it's working because Fergie's helping him, the Glazers are going to look at that, I think, as an Achilles heel in Solskjaer. Because what they don't want come this summer is a fan clamour for Solskjaer to be appointed with the correlation or um, the admission and also daily intervention of Ferguson in Solskjaer's reign as a coach at Manchester United. That's not what they want because then, as we, I think everyone who knows Sir Alex Ferguson uh, will attest, um, he's not someone who just puts one sugar in his tea you put four sugar in his tea if you think that's going to be an advantage for him <laughs> in any way. And by that, I mean he will give more advice rather than less. So um, if I was Solskjaer, and, I, I, and I'm sure he does have ambitions to take the job full-time, then I would be careful, certainly at least what I admit publicly, about who, the man he calls the gaffer giving him advice. I think you're 100% correct that Ferguson was sidelined by the Glazers. Um for many years at United and that um, getting him out of that, that position of power was one of the, the things that was very important to them um, in 2013. I would, however, add that my understanding of where the Glazers are um, from studying the club and the period and they've been in control and talking to people who've, who've worked at the club What's more important to them um, than anything, than any kind of power struggle, is making money. Um, and Solskjaer, if he continues on the path he's going, if he can get them in the Champions League, and that, that's, that's a big, um, big necessity there, get them back in the Champions League, get that financial uh, leverage and uh, extra firepower and money on the bottom line which they can take back out of the club in dividends um, if he can achieve that if he is still going to be the popular choice of the supporters which um, I don't see anything changing in that respect as long as uh, the results continue well and he, and he continues to present himself and present the club in the fashion he's doing then he is the easy solution and the economical solution because Solskjaer is not going to demand um, you know, huge control of transfers 
um, and, and push the club to uh, sign players in the same way that Mourinho did and, and when it was the key factor to his eventual demise as manager. Um, he's certainly not going to cost as much in salary as someone like Pochettino or, um, or Zinedine Zidane, for example, would cost. And he certainly won't cost anything in the way of compensation. There would be a compensation fee involved in taking him from Molde, because remember, he's still on loan from the Norwegian club. But nothing like the, the money they're going to have to pay to Tottenham Hotspur to get Pochettino away from Daniel Levy. So he's a very economical and populist solution. And remember, next time something goes wrong with the club, um, the fans are going to turn back on the Glazers and, and turn back to the argument which was being pushed earlier this season that they've had um, three permanent appointments in and all of them have struggled post-Ferguson and the common denominator is recruitment and the common denominator is the, the people running the club. So I think Solskjaer's in, in, a, in a great position um, because he just has to carry on doing what he's doing. Um, I think you're right, Ian, that uh, he has to, probably has to be careful in how far he pushes the Ferguson line um, because that will not appeal to the Glazers if he, if he pushes it too far. And, and I should add that one of the things that um, Jose Mourinho attempted to do during his time at the club was bring um, Ferguson back into a role of prominence on the board. Um, although he's a board member, he's not, he's not been involved in the PLC board which is the, essentially the Glazer family and their um, ex-city uh, advisors who run the club financially and take all key decisions. And, and Mourinho had hoped to get Ferguson back in there because he recognised the problems with the board and the lack of football experience and knowledge and felt it would be good to have someone of Ferguson's immense knowledge of the game as a, as a kind of counterpoint to them and as a voice to, of to help him with um, disagreements with the board or advising the board on how, how the organisation of the club should change. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting situation to watch how he handles it. I think one other thing to watch with Solskjaer, um, because he's now demonstrated that he can come up with a tactical plan, or at least the, the team, he set a, a group around him that can do that. It's, it's also whether he can do what the very top managers do, and this is change tactics during the game, because that, I think, was the one thing that was lacking against Tottenham. Um, at halftime, Pochettino realised the weakness um, in his setup and realised uh, that, that it was being exploited by um, United's um, use of their forwards wide and, and Lingard in a, in a kind of false nine role. And he, he switched to um, a winger system, put Son out wide, um, reshaped his midfield and immediately took complete control of the game. Um, it was, you know, a barrage of chances. I think I think they could have had four they had four very good shots inside fifteen minutes and it just carried on that way through the half. Yes, United um, had some opportunities on the break, but essentially um, Tottenham and Pochettino had taken tactical control and there wasn't a solution. Um, coming from the bench. There wasn't a change. The, the, the switch he made was to bring Lukaku on at centre-forward. Um, no, no basic change to the setup. Um, interestingly, Teddy Sheringham 
Uh, he was doing some commentary for Premier League TV, talked about that after the game and, and highlighted uh, the fact that, um, that Solskjaer and Co. seemed to be kind of bedazzled and, and lacking in, in that, that ability to change matches. And I think that, that will be a test for him down the line because you don't always get a whole week's preparation. You don't always get a week to uh, change your tactical shape and have your players train in that tactical shape so it becomes even even easier for them to implement in the game. So you, you need to be able to come up with solutions on the fly or, as the really good managers have, they've worked out the way the, game, the, the, the shapes can change during the match and they've already prepared the players for that potential change of shape if the game changes and practice it beforehand and they're ready to implement it uh, when the time comes around. And one very last quick point, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, I think this is a practical example of um, the current standing um, regarding uh, the Glazers and um, Edward Wood with regard to the history of Manchester United. Uh, on any given match day at Old Trafford, um, in the boardroom, the opposing team directors dine in a different room with Sir Alex Ferguson and uh, Sir Bobby Charlton. And the Glazers and Ed Woodward and the other directors dine in a different room. So they're greeted, the opposing team directors that is, by everyone. But when it comes time to sitting down and talking about the, you know, lovely nitty gritty of football and what's happening to each other's clubs. And this is very unusual in the Premier League, we should say. This is the only example I know of where a group of directors sits in a different room from the directors of the club they're entertaining. And Fergie and Charlton are there with the other directors, almost as statesmen. It would be remiss to talk about this game and not mention the titanic performance of David De Gea. Duncan, what's the situation with his contract and do you think United have got a chance of keeping a hold of him for much longer? There's no change to, to what we've um, described um, multiple times in this podcast. He's, he wants to be the best paid player at the club. Um, he feels he deserves to be the best paid player at the club. Um, he um, did not appreciate that when he was settled um, after Mourinho came in as manager, after Mourinho had convinced him to stay, we should um, remember in, his, his, uh, in Mourinho's first summer when he had an a, a option in his contract to leave at a specific price, um, before a set date and turned down the opportunity to go home, go to Madrid that summer. He, he was not um, impressed that the club didn't come and improve his contract at the time when he was ready to sign a new extension uh, to the deal. And he's waiting uh, for them to reward him appropriately for, for what he feels his talents are and what he feels his contribution has been to Manchester United. So he will be down to the final year in the summer. He's already made it clear that um, uh, if, if they do not give him what he wants, he will run his contract down and leave on a free transfer. I don't think he wants to do that. I think he's quite happy to carry on at Manchester United, but he's not going to be shortchanged to do so. So it's a, you know, it's a very simple equation of United have to pay the player what he feels he deserves and he will extend if not, they lose him um, to for nothing to the highest bidder who who will 
be pay, then be paying a... It will a, be Paris Saint-Germain, Duncan. It could well be Paris Saint-Germain, yeah, they're one of the candidates. Moving on to Manchester United's former assistant manager, Duncan, you have some news regarding Rui Faria. Yeah, so Rui Faria, as we know, resigned as assistant manager to Jose Mourinho after 17 years working together in the summer to spend time with his family, take a, a break from football and um, consider his options before starting uh, as a manager in his own right. Um, he's had quite a lot of offers in the interim period, but he's currently in Qatar um, making a final decision and an offer to take charge of the Qatari champions, Al Duhail. Um, so it's an interesting proposition in that he's been asked not just to um, get them the, the title again in Qatar, but also um, to get as far as possible and hopefully win the Asian Champions League. But then there's a, there's a third um, element to the job, which is because Al Duhail have quite a lot of the Qatar national team players, the Emir of Qatar, who has been in, uh, involved in essentially all the, the clubs in Qatar and the, and the promotion of football in the country, wants Faria um, and his coaching abilities and you know, recognising that he's one of the top coaches in, in world football to be working with a, a group of the national team players on a daily basis at the club level and improve their quality um, to benefit the national team as they go towards um, hosting the World Cup. I think I understand the offers for a year and a half um, with a, an option of another year. Um, and I think he is, uh, from what I understand, very tempted by the role. Um, obviously, it's, um, it's a position that comes with a, a large uh, financial um, remuneration. Um, and it's a, an option to, uh, to kind of make money um, from the game that he, he might have made earlier if he'd become a, a first-team manager in the right. Um, and uh, I think I understand that Qatar is quite appealing to him as a place to live because he can take his family there. Um, he thinks it's a sort of cosmopolitan setup where the, the, there can be a, a reasonably high quality of life compared to places like um, Saudi Arabia or China, where he's also had offers from. Um, so looks like that's where Faria is going to be starting uh, his career as a manager. Um, and you can expect a decision, if not today, certainly before the end of the week. Can't believe he's not interested in Huddersfield. That's just, you know, off the scale there, Duncan. Given what you just said about cosmopolitan centres of football and financial generation. <laughs> well, he's turned down a few um, uh, jobs that you would think would be very appealing. One, one example was Monaco approached him uh, to take the job, but uh, I think he's a, a very canny individual and he knew the problems that were involved at Monaco and the problems that have been evident since Thierry Henry took over there. So um, I think it... Uh, it's a, a sign of a, an individual's intelligence when they know the first job as the manager is can be important to the perception of them going forward and you want to go somewhere where you can be a success. And uh, I think that there's been a, a reluctance to take on um, the, the jobs that were initially presented um, as available because of problems within the clubs and Monaco being you know, a good example of that. 
Okay, well, we're moving on to Chelsea now. We are uh, Maurizio Sarri has had a decent start to life in West London. They sit in fourth position. However, cracks are beginning to show in his relationship with the club and Marina Granovskaya. Ian, what's the latest? Yeah, it's, um, this is developing one, Johnny, it has to be said. Um, Sarri, I think we could... Um, Accurate describes a little bit of a loose cannon in terms of um, he's, he's not a yes man. Uh, he's not willing to, to bow to everyone else's will when asked to give a small example of this and then go on to what we're talking about in terms of transfer business. Um, after Chelsea's win against Newcastle, um, he directly opposed the club briefing about the situation involving Alvaro Morata being left out of the squad and candidly said, and very forthrightly said in a post-match interview, that Murata was not as briefed by the club, suffering from a hamstring injury, that he was perfectly fit and able to play. However, and I quote, with three small players up front, then there's no reason to have two big players on the bench because if I'm going to change how things work, then I change it and bring Giroud on. Murata is fully fit. Now, we know that Murata's been punted around almost every club in Europe who might be able to afford his 200,000 a week wages uh, with no return whatsoever so far. And um, this is the kind of thing that, that Chelsea as a club do not um, take lightly, nor um, uh, will they uh, respond to it well when the manager blatantly contradicts them uh, publicly with regards to what they've said and then what he then gives as the actual reason. Obviously, as a manager, he knows. So um, that's the first little crack, I think, that you see in terms of the relationship which exists between Sari and the people who are running the club, and in particular, um, the de facto chief executive, uh, Marina Granskaya, who is on the football board and runs transfers. Sarri made it very clear, and we talked about this last week on, uh, on the transfer window, that he wanted a player to replace Cesc Fabregas in midfield in terms of his squad before Fabregas was allowed to leave. Here we are today, Fabregas has made his Monaco debut and still no players come in. Now, as I said, Sarri is not going to be happy about that. I think he's, what's happening is um, he was given, let's just say, a gift in the summer when the club bought Jorginho from his former club, Napoli, um, for a vast amount of money um, for a midfielder who effectively didn't really command that kind of price. But it was a case of, well, he's come in, he's a new manager, we'll keep him happy. And that's fine. And Jorginho has performed pretty well, um, albeit at the expense of moving uh, N'Golo Conte, probably the best player in that position in the Premier League, to a right-sided midfield position, which has caused consternation at Chelsea dressing as well as amongst their fans. However, um, with what's going on now, what we've seen is that um, Sarri, um, a man who came to management late in his life, who only worked in Italy before now, focuses himself on players that he knows, respects, thinks well of in Serie A. So Gonzalo Higuain, who worked with him um, at Napoli, um, is someone who he wants to bring it to the club on loan at least, if not as a permanent transfer. But he's 31 years old. It would be a very expensive signing. And the club, uh, Chelsea that is, are apprehensive, if not um, slightly recalcitrant about um, bringing a player of that age in on such big wages, 
etc., not knowing what they'll get out of them or not. This is a, a, a guy who has been effectively not good enough for Juventus, which is why he's unknown at Milan. Um, and then you've got um, Barea as well, uh, another player who we, I think we spoke about last week, who <clears throat> was a very good prospect five years ago, but doesn't really seem to have um, progressed enough to justify the price tag that he has. So you're in a situation now which I think effectively almost every Chelsea manager in the last decade have found themselves in, in a January window, whereby he has identified um, particular positions in the team that need to be strengthened. He has gone to the board of directors and in particular the, the head honcho, Mirnagraskaya, and said, these are the players I want. And he's effectively been told, well, we don't agree with you. We don't think these players are either worth the money or they are good enough or they are young enough to bring into the club at the prices that are being quoted. And therefore, we'll give you alternative suggestions and then you can make your mind up or we'll make our mind up, most likely, as to who actually comes in. So, like I just said, they're not, they're not near to the divorce course as Chelsea have been repeatedly with Mourinho, with Conte, etc., etc., just yet. But I think Sarri's character is one which, I don't know, I don't think he'll put up with it as long as even Conte did, which was only two years. Um, and therefore, if things don't improve in this window, and indeed um, the team suffers in terms of results um, as a direct um, uh, consequence of the inaction of the football administrators to strengthen the squad, then he'll go towards the summer and he may well think to himself, I'm not going to put myself out there anymore because uh, I'm not failing on my own terms. I'm failing on the terms of someone else who I don't believe knows as much about football as I do. So, Ian, just, think, just quickly, has he enhanced his reputation in his time at Chelsea so far? And probably he has, Johnny, um, in terms of the way that the, the team have played. But let's face it, they, you know, they're not really in contention for the Premier League their Champions League path would be very, very um, difficult, if not, you know, impossible in terms of winning that. So, um, in terms of winning a trophy in his first season, I think we're, we're, you know, he's he's got the potential, obviously, to get to the League Cup final, having lost just one 0 to Tottenham last midweek. But a League Cup is not enough at Chelsea. So, um, the FA Cup still, obviously, is there for them. But at the same time. Again, Champions League and League title are the only two trophies that Chelsea care about in, in terms of you know their prestige. And I think he's far away from both of those. Um, and I think Sarri will feel that um, one of the reasons for that is he's been let down in terms of um, augmenting his squad. And as I said, <clears throat> he's not the kind of character, he's not docile, um, he's not malleable. He won't be pressured by someone else to change his mind about something. Um, and therefore, as I said, it's not, it's not quite at the divorce court yet, but I think we're seeing definite cracks in the relationship between the club and the manager. I have a degree of sympathy for Sarri because this happens with every Chelsea manager. Um, there's always a conflict with the club over transfers. The manager always loses eventually, and the manager's always sacked eventually. Where I question some of what he's doing is... <sighs> A lot of this has been brought on by himself. It's the dogmatism of his tactics, the way he sets the team up. Um, you know, choosing Jorginho, um, which who, who he felt was fundamental to the way he wanted the team to play, but then moving 
N'Golo Kante, who most people would argue is one of the best, if not the best, in, in that position in world football, to another role to accommodate Jorginho. And then saying things like, um, we need an immediate replacement for Fabregas because I don't have any backup for Jorginho. Um, if he gets injured, that's just um, making himself so open to external criticism. And even Marina Granovskaya, uh, with her um, limited knowledge of football, must see uh, the problems in, in, and the obvious flaws in, in that statement. And I think, you know, when you start talking publicly about transfers and start undermining the club position at Chelsea, then it is a one-way path um, unless you um, you win the Premier League title or win the Champions League. Um, and he's not going to win the Premier League this year, so that leaves very little scope for him to um, to kind of not even assert his authority, just do enough to remain in position when he's he's um, tugging the nose of the owners on a, you know, a, a regular basis at present. Um, again, I think uh, the lack of rotation in his system and the way he makes his midfielders run so hard, the amount of work they have to do because of the, the way he asks them to um, press opponents and also get for, break beyond the line. Um, to uh, create chances for Jorginho's passes through. It's no coincidence that that's come to hurt them in this winter period where you have fixture after fixture and no break, as he had in Italy. And uh, performances have tailed off. It's not a surprise that the players are tired um, and they're struggling with, with repeated matches. And it's not a surprise that opponents have watched the way he sets his team up, sees that he... he makes little variation to it and come up with plans to um, to compete against it. I think also, if you look at Chelsea's financial results this week, they're very telling. Um, the club made a £67 million profit last season, the third highest ever achieved in the Premier League. More importantly, they made the highest ever profit on player transfers by a Premier League club, reporting profit of £113 million. And if you look at their history, the recent history in the transfer market, it's quite incredible. It's 13-14, 14-15, 16-17, 17-18. They all made, every year they made profit on transfers. Um, three of the high, sixth highest profits ever made by Premier League and transfers. Over the last five years, £337 million of profit and transfers. They're not making, this, this year has been an exception, in the degree of profit they've made. Generally, they're pretty close to breaking even. So they need to make money from these transfers to uh, to keep the club on a, an even financial keel without Abramovich putting additional cash in, which he doesn't want to do anymore. In fact, he's probably ready to sell the club if the, if the right offer comes along. Who's behind that? Marina Granovskaya is behind that strategy. You know, we've, we've talked about it many times. It's, a, it's about buying players um, not necessarily to play for Chelsea, but to, to have talents, to develop them under the Chelsea ownership, to loan them out to other clubs and take profits on, on their sales. And it works. It's been very successful. It's being targeted by FIFA at the moment, who want to limit this kind of policy of um, stocking up on talent by big clubs like City and, and Chelsea, because they feel it's... Um, 
bad for the rest of football and bad for the players in many cases. But the, the underlying point is this is fundamental to the way Chelsea work. It's fundamental to Man- Marina Granovskaya's role at the club. It's fundamental to what Abramovich is asking her to do. So if you question it, if you pressure her to do different things by using your um, ability to talk to the press, talk to the fans on a bi-weekly or, or more basis, there's friction within the club. And it's only because you're undermining the, the central plank of Chelsea's operating strategy. And as we said before, when you do that at Chelsea, it only goes one way. They bring in another coach who they believe will do what he's told for long enough and keep them in the Champions League uh, and keep things ticking over. So moving on to a player that we've already discussed here on the transfer window, Frankie de Jong, Ajax's multi-uber-talented midfield schemer. Now we discussed how Manchester City had been looking at this player in a great deal of detail. Pep Guardiola fancied him. But now it seems like he is off to pastures new abroad. Duncan, what's the latest on Mr. De Jong? Yeah, so the latest on De Jong is that um, PSG have um, furthered their pursuit of the player in that they'd they'd already proposed a a deal of 75 million euros to Ajax um, several weeks ago. They've now agreed personal terms with the player and they're very much in the box seat as far as uh, recruiting him is concerned. Um, it's not completely done. I think this leaves open the possibility for one of the other clubs that are interested in matching or bettering the financial terms offered both to the club and the player or coming up with a, a more interesting proposal to the player. And I know De Jong's preference has been to play in Spain, but um, I think he's, he's hindered there in that Adrian Rabio who he will be replacing at PSG, has refused to sign a new contract there and um, is on his way to Barcelona. And he's the, the cheaper option for Barcelona, who, um, as um, we were talking about uh, wages at clubs, um, and Barcelona have the highest wages in world football at present. So there is a, a, a kind of restriction on them in terms of doing Really super big deals for, for young players like De Jong. What's interesting, because you mentioned Manchester City, is, um, is that they look to have stepped out of um, this chase for a player that Guardiola um, very much wanted to bring to the team and felt fitted perfectly uh, with the, the playing structure he uses there. Um, and I don't think it's unconnected that um, Guardiola, before the, uh, the Wolves... Uh, match uh, on Monday night um, gave a press conference in where he was asked about signing another midfielder, Ruben Neves um, from Wolves and um, actually a story we did in the, on the podcast several months ago that Wolves valued the player Neves at £100 million um, and saying that yeah, I saw those stories about his price um, there's no way we would pay that much for a holding midfielder and going on to essentially complain about the budget available to him um, which is quite incredible really given that he has the, the most expensive squad in world football and that, that the team, the club has spent the best part of one and a half billion on, on transfer fee commitments since 2010 but Guardiola is basically complaining 
about not having enough cash um, made available to sign further players to that team. And what he said was, our wage bill for the players is eighth or ninth or tenth in Europe. So there are eight or nine clubs where the wages are higher than what Manchester City pay. We try to be stable in everything. Um, we won't actually know whether that's true until all the uh, 18, 19 accounts are released. I'd be incredibly surprised when the 18, 19 accounts are released to discover that Manchester City are as low as eighth, as certainly as low as tenth in Europe on wages paid. Um, if you look at the, 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 the wages as declared by the clubs in their latest accounts, City currently stand fourth in the world um, behind Barcelona, who have that almost 500 million euros committed to wages uh, last season. Uh, Real Madrid, who are close to 400 million. Manchester United, 337 million. Manchester City, 296 million. Um, probably PSG will go past them, but then you've got Bayern, Juventus, Chelsea, who will not go past them. Um, they, they announced their wages and they're still significantly lower than City's for last season. Liverpool and Arsenal, again, no chance of those two going past them. So why is Guardiola complaining? Well, He's always complained about signings. He's always pushed the club to get more. Um, he's always wanted two for each position. But I think there's a little, there's possibly a little extra element here in the uh, financial fair play investigations that UEFA, FIFA and the Premier League are um, engaging in um, following the rev revelations about the club. Um, and I think uh, it looks as though Manchester City have decided to step away from um, some of these deals because they're concerned that they're going to get caught out in the financial fair play investigations and have to bring their, um, their future wage bill and the future expenditure on transfers into line. Um, and I don't think this will go away. Um, if Manchester City fail to win the Champions League, as Abu Dhabi are pressuring Guardiola to do, and if they lose the Premier League title to Liverpool, I think we'll be hearing more about this from Guardiola. And uh, it will be interesting to see how the club handle that if he does persistently talk about transfers, saying, you know, we can't do that because we don't spend big and we don't spend enough for our players' wages and we're being outcompeted by the rest, given that they've already spent more on him than any managers ever had in the history of the game. The other thing about this, Duncan, is it it shows that <clears throat> the financial power of the Premier League is not um, as great as perhaps the broadcasting rights or the image of the Premier League likes to present. Um, Frankie de Jong was on the radar, not just in Manchester City, but of effectively all of the elite clubs, so Manchester United, Chelsea, Spurs, um, and... Liverpool as well and so the fact that he's chosen possibly PSG um, and again you've got to look at the financial aspect of how players are paid at PSG as well but effectively going to compete in a much uh, more inferior league in terms of competition um, we, you know, we know that Neymar plays about 16 relatively competitive games a season um, since his move there from Barcelona and most of them are in the Champions League and so it's um, 
I think it's a worrying sign because um, if you can't attract a, a young midfielder from Ajax to play at the you know in the competitive level that you get in the Premier League, then it's it's something which you have to look at yourselves and think: well, is it a financial thing? Is it a, an attraction or prestige thing uh, coming to the Premier League, or you know what what exactly is the problem with attracting the best players in the world? Because we've already seen. Um, situations in the recent well, in the last 18 months where Neymar chose Paris Saint-Germain where Cristiano Ronaldo chose Juventus um, and whereas in the 1990s and early 2000s the Premier League was the destination for the best players in the world to come I think in the last three to four or five years we've seen that very very small group of players who can be counted as the best in the world either remain in the case of Leo Messi when he was courted um, extensively by Manchester City, um, Neymar by Manchester United, uh, Frankie de Jong by almost every uh, you know, elite club in England now as well, choosing to, to, to turn their back on a Premier League move. Um, and with the changing atmosphere, environment and dynamic with regards to UEFA competitions and by that I mean uh, Champions League as well as um, the very let's just say um, not just, I, I hate to say because uh, it seems very kind of um, I don't know, I, you know you say the physical nature of the Premier League is, is can be off-putting to skillful foreign players Um I think it's more the the arduous nature of the competition itself. Thirty eight games, plus cup games and Champions League, whereby you know players do get fatigued and burned out. And I think we'll end up, I believe anyway, seeing other players leave, and the most notable being um, Eden Hazard will leave for Real Madrid this summer. Uh, and part of that will be because of the reasons I've expressed, but also because of the problems we have currently in. Um, presenting the Premier League as the place to play. I, I disagree with you in the, the idea that the best players in the world ever came to the Premier League. I think I don't think that the Premier League ever managed that. Um, if you look at it, uh, he was uh, he was never the best player in the world when he signed. I mean, he was a, a, a gamble at the time who, was, who, who hadn't really established his career. Or if you're talking about the Kakas, the Cristiano Ronaldo's. Um, they move when they're at the peak of the game. If you're looking at Eden Hazard, he's not going to move to another Premier League club. Peak of the game, he either goes to Real Madrid or or he finishes his career elsewhere. Um, they've always chosen La Liga, essentially. But they're, um, not, cho- they're not choosing PSG. Yeah, that, and I was going to say that um, the, the problem for the Premier League is not only are they not picking up the guys at the top, of the, of the game, like the very best players, which they never managed to do, which Manchester City have tried to do. They tried to get Messi out of Barcelona and all they essentially succeeded in doing was handing Messi the biggest contract in football because he took that to Barcelona and said, this is what I've been offered. If you want to keep me, you pay these terms. There's no negotiation involved. You pay it. Otherwise, I'm leaving because I've got this offer elsewhere. Um, that's what City achieved when they went after who they perceived to be the best player in the world. Ronaldo, the but other see, best my, player... But Duncan, that's my point. Um, they couldn't attract Messi, even on those terms. Messi preferred to stay in Spain, so they can't attract yeah. these these great players now. Um, yeah, uh, and, 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 and they're and, and attract the best young players. 
Yes, I think that that's the more interesting thing because now you have um, Barcelona, Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain with their resources focusing on players um, in their early 20s or even younger as uh, the guys who are going to turn into the next tier of potential best players in the world and paying huge amounts of money to get them. Previously, the Premier League was quite good at that. They, they, they have had a lot of success um, for several years targeting that age range of players and paying what were very high fees for them, not the, the, not the amounts we're talking about now, but in relative terms, outbidding everyone else for that tier of players. But now they've got competition um, from clubs with bigger wage budgets. You know, Madrid and, and Madrid, Madrid and Barcelona are able to outpay everyone because they have a, a larger chunk of the of the, the broadcast revenue. In Spain, and Paris Saint Germain are able to outbid almost everyone because they're run by a nation state. Um, so Premier League's kind of getting hit both ways there now. Um, and, and it's an interesting switch and in dynamic in the, in the market. Duncan, we talked about Omar Niasse, Everton striker last week, and the potential interest from other Premier League clubs looking for a, a goal scorer at that level. What's the, the latest news? Is there any updates there? Yes, um, I think from what I understand, is he's close to moving. It looks almost certain he's going to go in this window. Um, I believe there is a strong offer from Cardiff and a strong offer from Newcastle. And it's likely to be one of those two clubs he moves to. I think if it's Newcastle, you will more likely see that as a loan with an option to buy. Um, Cardiff might appear to have the cash to, to um, pay a transfer immediately. Um, Everton would prefer to sell and get money in the bank um, and move the player on. Uh, and the player, as we said in the podcast last week, is desperate to get on the pitch, uh, show that he can score goals in the Premier League, and uh, and re-establish himself as a as a first choice for a striker. He's he's done that before, um, and he's frustrated that Everton wants to be playing. So that could be done before the end of the week. Okay, moving on to the quickfire round this week. We've been inspired by the potential moves of Marco Anautovic and Moussa Dembele, who are on their way to China. Now, these guys are still at the peak of their career, still firing on all cylinders in the Premier League. But there's also the other type of player that goes to China that's going towards the end of their career. And what we want to know from the guys is whether or not the player that I mentioned is on the slow boat to China or the speedboat. So... Are they going to see out the end of their career or are they going with still plenty to offer and going for the money? We're going to start with you, Ian. Mesut Ozil. Uh, Johnny, I, I would... I don't have my, my boating licence, but I, I'd drive him to China myself um, just to get his 250 grand a week wages off of the Arsenal wage bill. It's exacerbating that they've not offered um, Aaron Ram's new contract and yet they continue to put up with... Ozil's injuries and moods and lack of um, commitment to play in certain times. So um, for me, speedboat or, you know, as I said, you know, get me a hydrofoil, I'll take him there myself. Captain McGarry is getting his sea legs ready. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan, Luka Modric. Luka Modric, I think um, definitely a slow boat to China. Uh, Modric wanted out of Madrid in the summer um, had a deal in place to go to Internazionale, which Madrid blocked um, sensibly on their part. Um, is keen to cash in 
on his status as um, Ballon d'Or winner. Um, and understandably so, because he's always been um, a very low-profile player relative to his ability. Um, and I, I hope he ends up at a club like Inter rather than where he's paid as he expects to be paid rather than having to, to go to China um, to get that money. So hopefully a slow boat for him. Ian, I don't know how goats get on in China. Lionel Messi? Oh, it's a good question, actually. I've had many a good goat curry in Africa, but not, I've never been to China, so I don't know. Um, no, I think Messi is someone who is above and beyond. He's getting more money playing at Barcelona than he would even get in China, Johnny, so I don't see him being tempted. Um, Leo Messi is probably one of the only two untouchable players currently in world football with regards to um, their status, what they earn, and their reputation. I think Messi, having signed his new contract um, with Barcelona, will probably retire from there. If not, I think America, only because of the attraction of playing there and his family life, um, so I'd say there's no boat to China for Leo Messi. One of only two players says, Ian, is this name perhaps the other one, Duncan? Cristiano Ronaldo? Well, Cristiano Ronaldo's obviously had huge offers from China in the past. Um, you know, immense riches uh, placed in front of him if he was prepared to go there. But uh, the man's so motivated um, by... As, you know, as we've said many times, not by simply demonstrating himself to be the greatest footballer of all time. He wants to be recognised as the greatest sportsman of all time. He wants to play until he's 40 and he wants to play at the top level until he's 40. And I think part of the reason he moved to Juventus was, uh, was, was, was there. So I don't see him taking, again, any boats to China anytime soon because he's, um, he's, he's still highly competitive. Um, on at the top level, wouldn't surprise me if he um, adds another Champions League success at Juventus this season, and it ends up yet again being the top scorer in the in the Champions League this season. Um, so forget about China; he's focused on European football. Well, we're going to move on to managers now, and uh, this one's a name that's very close to Ian's heart: Big Sam Allardyce. I do hear <clears throat> that in China they do a supersized Chime which obviously could have Big Sam's name on it. Um, the shock news uh, that Huddersfield may not be interested in the great one in saving from relegation, having parted company with David Wagner, is um, something which will be preying on his mind because it seems that even the jobs, that his um, gargantuan expertise um, is made for may no longer be coming his way. So um, I think with Big Sam... Um, I think there's a speedboat waiting, parked somewhere near his um, northwest home, probably Liverpool, uh, to take him there. So um, if he gets a chance, I think we know that um, you know the, the the lure of a job and the lure of um, very good remuneration is something close to his heart. So um, I'd put him on a speedboat. Duncan, Monsieur Arsène Wenger. Well, I understand Wenger had a, a very lucrative offer um, to move to China uh, for the upcoming season uh, placed in front of him recently and, and wasn't interested in taking it. Um, I think Wenger is still waiting uh, for a chance to prove he's still got it 
as a manager at the top level of the game um, and he's hoping that a big club uh, job opens up for him. Um, and I would also say, as, as someone who, who began their journalistic career in Japan, um, if he was to take a national team job, that's the one I, I wonder whether he would go for. He was immensely popular in that country. I mean, treated like almost like a demigod. With Remains people. so as well, Duncan. He always goes there to commentate, doesn't he, on um, European Championships and World Cups? Exactly. He still has strong links in the country. They've asked him to, to coach the national team many times before. Um, I think he very much enjoyed his stay there. So while the financial opportunities um, aren't the same in Japanese football as they are in, in China or Saudi Arabia, Qatar um, these days, um, I think if, for a national team job, that might be the one that Wenger were to take. Um, so the slightly slightly faster boat to Japan rather than the, uh, the slow boat to China. Johnny, calling Johnny. He's got his mic off again. I know, but he can certainly hear us though. Yeah, sorry cool. guys. <laughs> Transfer window listeners should know that I am officially dying throughout this podcast, so I have my mic turned off so you don't hear me coughing and splutting my way through this episode. And therefore I shall draw a line under proceedings so I can go home to my bed. To continue the debate, we're all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Carbo SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next week. Until next time, thanks for listening.